Hey folks, welcome to the Team Builder Podcast. This is your host, Hewitt Tomlin. I am one of the co-founders here at Team Builder. We are the number one strength and conditioning software for strength coaches in any setting. If you are still writing your programs using Excel, then Team Builder is something that you may want to look into. So today's guest is Corey Waltz. He's the Director of Strength and Conditioning at University of Pennsylvania, otherwise known as Penn. It's an Ivy League school. I met Corey when he was at Division III Haverford, and I decided to invite him onto the podcast today to talk about professionalism because Corey is quite simply one of the most professional people that I know. Uh, When I started working with Corey, he struck me as a coach that would probably do well in any industry that he chose to go into. And he obviously has done that in strength and conditioning as as he's made the jump recently to uh, being the director of SMC at a Division I college from Haverford. And uh, I decided to interview him about what it means to be a professional strength coach. So we talk about kind of his career, how he's oriented himself uh, over time, nature versus nurture, those kinds of things. And then we get into some stuff about, you know, how does a coach improve on being more professional? in terms of communicating with coaches, with athletes? Do they have to look the part? Obviously, his background is deeply rooted in continuing education, reading, and we even talk a little bit about where he's starting to head in terms of what kind of content he's digesting, which is, you know, unsurprisingly, much less about the science and the X's and O's of being a strength coach and more about the why and the mental and management aspect behind it. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast and let me know what you think. All right. Hey, Corey, how you doing today? Doing great, Hewitt. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. And um, as folks you heard in the intro, you've got a little bit about Corey's background. Corey, um, you know, you and I started working a couple of years ago when you were with Haverford, and that's obviously Division Three school. You made the jump to now leading the performance department at Penn. And uh, I kind of thought it'd be helpful to maybe revisit your days at Haverford because that's really when I got a sense of, you know, who you were as a person, as a strength coach. Sounds great. I, I think, you know, when I, I we started working together at Haverford, it, something jumped out to me. It was like, you know, Corey's, he, he's on his game. He's on, on top of the ball. And uh, one of those things was just that, um, you, you know, you, you kind of had a, a program at Haverford that was like a little bit bigger than the the division three programs that I worked with before. And when I say the word bigger, I mean, you, you took it very seriously, but you kind of went above and beyond just the, the X's and O's of training. And one of those things was, for example, you know, you had like a student athlete committee where you gather student athletes to give feedback on the strength program. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also had them meet with vendors like myself. And I would never seen that before. So I I guess my first question, this whole thing is, is, you know, even when you were at Haverford, you you were running the program in a way that I would consider, you know, highly professional and above and beyond. And is that something that was always kind of part of your personality or would you attribute it to like an environment that you kind of came up with in your career? Was it Haverford? How did that kind of happen for you in your career? Yeah, it's a good question. And I really don't like comparing myself to other people. I never have. So I'll just speak on kind of what I've done and how I've transitioned in this field. And I do think it's, it's twofold. And it's interesting that you kind of notice that, um, Number one, it's just who I am. So I'm very detail-oriented, no matter the situation, project, person I'm working with. Uh, and to be honest, at, at times it's a little negative because I sometimes focus on the 
intricate details when, you know, I should be looking a little bit more globally and I don't need to waste my time on certain things. But I think the majority of the time it does benefit me. I'll also say it, it kind of started early in life. I was never the most athletic. I was never the most gifted at any sports. Um, I was never the sharpest mind. And I, my wife can attest to that, but I, uh, I had to put in twice as much um, work and effort and even time uh, just to kind of be even with my peers. So, you know, that work ethic, that attention to detail um, started early. Um, and then the unique part about my journey was Haverford College, most certainly. So I worked there 12 years. I started when I was 24 years old. Uh, it was my first job. I came right out of graduate school at the University of Maryland. Um, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to do. All I knew is what the strength and conditioning coaches did when I was working for them uh, as an intern. So uh, at the beginning, it was very um, extrinsically motivated based. You had a carrot, you held it out in front of the athletes, you even chased them down when they didn't uh, meet your standards. Now this is, um, as a reminder, at a division three institution, a very small school. Now Haverford is not your normal division three institution. Um, it has this honor code where they expect everybody to be treated with respect, uh, with this autonomy. We're per, uh, supposed to provide the student uh, with an ownership of their process. Um, so the Division Three model, as a reminder to the listeners that might not know, everything is voluntary in the off-season. So nothing can be reported to the coaches, no consequences for a missed workout. It all has to be under their own guise. So it took that plus this culture at Haverford College, and I was consistently reminded, sometimes very harshly, from my athletic director, Corey, it needs to come from them. It needs to come from them. It needs to come from them. When I was 24, 25, 26, I didn't, reg I didn't register to me. I didn't digest that. There was no reason for that. It didn't make sense. So it took several years, and me listening to her, uh, athletic director's name was Wendy Smith, great person, cared deeply about the students, um, but also was, as you said, listening to them and just being around them more and knowing that I don't always have the answer. They do. So I wanted to provide them that ownership. And over time, I was reading more. I was talking to colleagues. And this autonomy component became an integral aspect of my program, and it still is. Uh, so I, I think it all stemmed from my upbringing, my innate inner drive, but also the environment of Haverford College. Yeah, that's interesting, man. So you had quite a bit of time at, at Haverford to kind of, you know, steer your own ship. And, um, you know, quite frankly, sometimes when a coach is in the same position for a long time, it can be very easy for them to kind of settle, I guess, in a way. And uh, by the time you had left Haverford, it, it didn't really seem that way. You were always kind of optimizing while you were there. Um, again, personality trait or something that the men at Haverford kind of accommodated you to do. How, how did that? How did that kind of play out for you being there so long and, and still kind of maintaining the same trajectory, professionally speaking? Sure. So, like a lot of other strength and conditioning coaches that are in charge of a small operation, um, they want to make it large. But also, there's a really low number of administration that oversees you. 
I was, my direct supervisor was the athletic director. She had numerous other things to worry about other than what the day in and day out operations of the fitness center. Um, and another layer of this, I was the director of the fitness center and the head strength and conditioning coach. So not only was it my job to program for all the student athletes, but also oversee all fitness programming for the entire campus and all wellness initiatives. So basically I was my own boss in terms of this day in day to day operation. Um, so I, this autonomy was also in my hands too. So anybody that knows the autonomy research clearly knows that the more autonomy you have, the more internal motivation you have. And that's exactly the situation I was in. So uh, I was just able to learn a little bit more every year. I was also blessed to be around an individual named Matt Ballenberg, who was my assistant for the last several years. He's now working in Major League Baseball, a great creative mind that thinks completely differently than me in such a positive way. Uh, because he was so outside the box and I was so inside the four walls uh, that we just meshed really well and created some pretty amazing programs because of the diversity of them. So uh, I think it, it, it really was kind of what you're alluding to is just that the environment um, and, you know, any good strength and conditioning coach does this. They review, they see what's working, what's not working, and they adapt and, you know, it's, I think Ryan Horn or somebody might have said this. It's, you know, you want to make the big time where you are. Ron McKeever or somebody like that said that. And that's what I did. I didn't worry about where I was going or uh, what else was out there. It's just if you try to impact who you work with and that's the only thing you worry about, you're going to do a great job. And I wasn't looking to move on. I just found it an amazing opportunity that I couldn't pass up. Yeah. We're going to drill down now to the, the topic of the, the conversation specifically, which is professionalism. And, and for some background, folks, I, I saw a poll done uh, in an NSCA Facebook group specifically for college coaches. And uh, the poll was asking what kind of, you know, uh, dis, uh, what kind of discussion education did people want to see more of, which topic and professionalism came in first. And I've, I've seen that come up time and time again, which is why I thought it was important and, and, and pertinent. So professionalism, I, I want to ask you, Corey, how do you define a professional strength coach? And some examples I kind of wrote to myself would be, how do they dress? How do they speak? Um, are they effective communicators? How do they manage their staff? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, to give some background, some coaches, and, and, and this is not specific, I'm speaking hypothetically, but some coaches might have a thought of, if my athletes are getting faster, if they're getting stronger, and um, if they're winning on the field or the court, what does it matter? And um, maybe we can include that in the conversation. So how do you define a, a professional strength coach in your opinion? Respect. Do others respect you? Do you respect all others? No matter whether you're directly working with them or indirectly, uh, it all comes down to that word. So all of those aspects that you touched on, the dress, the speech, etc. It all goes back to respect. And, you know, if a certain coach has a different priority, if you're only worried about the numbers, then that's great. Concentrate on that. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm worried about impacting student athletes and teaching them about uh, what the next step is in your life. And if respect is not a major component of that, I feel like I've done them a disservice. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, do, do you have any 
additional things into, you know, say someone is, is commanding respect and is very respectful. Yeah. Um, are there, you know, because the, the fact of the matter is you should never judge a book by its cover. But the reality is, real life is, is that first impressions matter. You won't be able to explain yourself or get to know everyone that you need to have an impact on or have an impression on. So how does that come into it? That's a, it's a great question. And going back to what you said earlier, like we're not taught these things in undergraduate, graduate school. It's not part of the certification process, um, but I think it probably should be. I think public speaking should be. I think business components should be. Um, but in terms of like specific aspects of professionalism, I do agree. Uh, first impression. So what do you look like matters to a certain level. I think it's a inverted you like a lot of things you want to look and dress and act the part, but not be excessive, if that makes sense. So you need to have a minimum um, amount of fitness in your body that you can basically coach anything that or most things that you're consistent tuck, uh, whether I'm working out or not. I think that's professional. It, I mean, that's the only thing we can do is wear mesh shorts, but then tuck in. I think we have a pretty good life. Uh, if we can have clean shoes, if our hair can be appropriate, uh, facial hair appropriate, and just uh, kind of be a, for lack of a better term, professional. So if you're doing a presentation or if you're, if a recruit comes in, how do you look? Or can you easily have a conversation with a mom or a dad and not feel ashamed of the way you look? Speaking eloquently, I think is a big component too. I think there is a, I know you didn't ask this, but I'm going to throw this out there. To be honest, I think there's a slight lack of respect of our profession by people outside of our profession that don't know us because they have this misconstrued representation that we're just the weightlifter. We're just the, the strong meathead um, that is only lifting weights and that only cares about that. But I think our profession certainly has evolved. I think we can, you can attest to that, you know, so many strength and conditioning coaches, um, but speaking eloquently about more than just lifting weights and how um, all aspects of performance and health and wellness can be impacted um, goes a long ways. Um, and along those lines of communication is how well can you collaborate with the strength and conditioning coaches and uh, sorry, with the sport coaches. And it doesn't end there. How well can you communicate with administration? Uh, because if you really want to impact the student athlete, you're eventually going to need to ask for something. And if you haven't developed the lines of communication by speaking eloquently and being more than just the weight room person, then you're not going to get what is best for the student athlete. So I think it all goes into that respect. On the topic of language and communication, um, if a coach feels like they're not an effective communicator, um, how do they improve? Do you think they should take their language and make it more scientific if they're trying to explain the principles behind some of their training? Does it help to, to, to kind of be more science-based or do you think it's more than that? Do you think it's more about uh, the, the words they use or how they say, say things? It's most certainly not to be more scientific, to be honest. I think it's how can you relate to whoever you're speaking to? So, the best way to learn how to speak is to learn how to listen. And what is it that for the person that you're communicating with, what are they looking for? What um, is something that will stick to them? 
Uh, a great book is made to stick where you have to kind of, you have to work around the communication to be a, a, an effective communicator. So like put yourself in the other person's shoes to know uh, how to effectively communicate. So, and, and nine plus times out of 10, it is not scientific terminology because the only people that understand that are us and rarely are we the ones communicating to each other. It's, it's everybody else. So, uh, find out the effective means and you're speaking probably differently to a student athlete versus a sport coach versus administrator versus a recruit parent. And that's okay, but you need to be good at that. And the best way to get better is simply practice. Um, and you know, that comes, you know, when I was in my twenties, I did not how, know how to speak to basically anybody other than a student athlete, because that's who I was three years prior. And that's all I knew. But as time went, I got further away from, my college years and I've gotten more into coaching and administration. And so I, I know what I'm looking for when I'm interviewing somebody. Um, so I know how to effectively speak as well. Do you have um, certain preferences as to the medium of communication? For example, are, are you good at email? Uh, do you like to pick up the phone and call someone uh, and rather than resolve it over email? Are you a, a proponent of frequent in-person meetings? Uh, how do you approach that? Well, given that we're in our current situation, we've been getting quite comfortable with the phone and video calls. But, you know, optimally, I think it is in person. And, and this is the situation we're in and during the pandemic when we're stuck at home and we're only seeing each other through the, the screen makes me appreciate those face-to-face -face interactions and the way you can read body language and the, the way you can kind of start going on tangents and, and, and not worry about taking somebody's time because they came to see you or you came to see them. And you can have those infrequent um, interactions that are just walking down the hallway and poking your head into a coach's office or maybe uh, walking across campus with a student athlete um, where it just kind of, oh, it just happened to be there. And you, you miss that nowadays. One of the best things I ever did at Haverford College is create a, uh, what I call it, a, a Tuesdays with Corey. Have you ever read the book Tuesdays with Maury? No, I've heard of it, though. You heard of it? So outstanding book. Highly recommended to, to any listeners that are looking for it. Kind of a heartfelt book, but makes you appreciate, honestly, some of the things that we're missing right now. So uh, well, a little bit of background. I, I've had some work at Haverford with a charity event for that benefited ALS research. So this book is about an individual named Maury uh, who had ALS, is basically on his deathbed, and he reached out to um, somebody he taught back then, back in the days when he was a professor, and that individual who was Mitch Album, people may know that, that name, came to visit him every day, um, and they just had a not every day, every week, I should say, because he would fly to visit them. They would just talk about a different aspect of life that was meaningful. And what the book boiled down to is, is two things that at the end of the day, when your life is coming to an end, um, that really matter. And those are experiences and relationships, not necessarily the money um, or the tangible items. But it's those two things, the intangibles. So I decided uh, because it, the words kind of mesh together uh, Tuesdays with Corey. So I would basically reach out to a student athlete that I really didn't know very well, that it didn't have great lines of communication. I'd say, you know, next Tuesday, are you free at all? Um, can we go for a walk? So we just walk around. They have a nature trail. I have it for a college about two miles long. And 
we would just talk about anything other than strength and conditioning. And I was the one asking questions and they were the one talking about stuff that they, I had no idea about. And I was just open my, it opened my eyes to how deep student athletes are outside of the weight room. There's so much more to them than just the training. There's so many other reasons why they're in college other than their sport. Uh, just added a level of appreciation I have. And I think it added a level of appreciation that they had of me because I would care about this stuff. And I've tried to do the same thing at Penn. Um, had some deep conversations with some of the sport captains of the teams that I was taking over when I got there. And I also try to take walks with my staff um, maybe once a week. Um, we're in a beautiful urban environment. Um, so I, I just try to get outside and be around people during conversation. So you know, I know this is definitely a tangent of what you asked, but the more face-to-face -face interaction you can have, I think is beneficial. But if you can't, I'm all about emails and phone calls. I'm not a big social media person if it's very like professional matter. Um, but uh, that's a little bit about my preference. Yeah, well, that it, look, it, it's important what you mentioned because you could come off as professional and you know an effective communicator to your mm -hmm. coaches, and if you don't have the the relationships with the athletes, it's a big part yeah. of your job, perhaps the biggest. Um, do you do you encourage or, or cultivate, develop professionalism with your staff? I mean, I have to assume that if your staff members are speaking with strength coaches and with students, it's the reflection of your department and a reflection of you. Yeah. So how do you approach that? So we have not done anything official yet. No uh, professional workshops or, or anything of that nature. And to be honest, the main reason why is I'm blessed to work with a staff that is already professional. We have an excessive amount of experience on our staff. I think over we have six members of our staff and over 60 years of combined experience. And we have people that have been at Penn for over a decade, been um, at multiple other locations for close to a decade. And kind of run their own show elsewhere and have had to be in my shoes and uh, definitely are kind of in the same period of their career as I am. So, you know, I'm learning from them just as much as, as they hopefully are learning from me. And, you know, thankfully we haven't had to get to that point where I need to coach them up on being professional because they already are. I'm, I'm very lucky to be working with a great staff, but you know, if in the future they move on and we get a young staff of 24 to 27 year olds, then yeah, that probably will be a component of, of our education or our growth. And you know, we'll teach them how to uh, save their money and teach them how to uh, speak publicly and we'll, we'll teach them how to carry themselves in life. Um, but at this point, luckily, I don't have to do that right, right, right now. Yeah. And you mentioned body language a few minutes mm -hmm. ago. Um, should we talk about that a little bit? I mean, um, again, it's important, but probably overlooked. Um, executives at corporations uh, get executive coaches and they talk about body language, how to sit in a meeting, how to, to deliver and present. Um, any thoughts around that? Sure. Uh, I think it goes back to the respect. Do you respect the people you're talking to. So do you look them in the eyes and vice versa? Do you demand that respect when they're looking in your eyes or are they looking elsewhere? And if they're not, do you call them out on it right then and there? Uh, because the other people in that group are going to catch that. 
Are you slouching when you're talking to somebody, showing that you don't respect what they're saying? Um, because if you sit up, you're attentive, then again, that demonstrates that respect factor. So 100% do I agree that um, body language plays a role, which goes into that whole appearance, just like you're dressing, it's also your body language, most certainly. Is it difficult to display respect um, for everyone? Uh, because if the football coach has been at Penn for 20 years and they're a legend, Sure. It's kind of given everyone's going to, you know, give that person good body language and, 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 and exhibit some respect, but obviously sure. that's not the case all around. So um, have you had experiences like that where you have to, you know, someone's disagreeing with you or, or, you know, there's a conflict in place and you have to kind of see past it? I think one of the things that I learned last few years, and I didn't always think like this is always put yourself in their shoes in in the perspective of the sport coach or whoever that you're having a conversation with where you might not be seeing eye to eye, there is a reason why they are thinking differently. And they're most likely not attacking you personally um, or even professionally. They're just disagreeing with you or they have a different viewpoint or priority of that yeah. time. So you need to put yourself in their shoes. Um, in terms of the respect factor and like football coach versus somebody else that wasn't there long, one thing that came to mind recently is how are you addressing these individuals? Are you calling them coach, coaching them their last name? Are you calling them by their first name? And I've kind of, got, kind of gone back and forth on this. I, I find myself by default calling somebody coach or coach and last name. And I realized recently that I would have different um, – I would use different nomenclature for different people, kind of what you're alluding to. So football coach, I may call coach so-and-so, but the younger coach I may call by their first name. That was more similar to, uh, to my age. And recently I said, you know, why, I think I saw a post about this somewhere, but why am I doing that? Like they nine times out of 10 to me are calling me by my first name. They're saying, Corey, fill in the blank. You know, if they're on my level professionally, I should be doing that same thing. So recently I started, made it a point to call them by their first name. You know, I'm an adult now, just like you are. When we have a professional conversation, just the two of us are in a small group, I'm going to call you by your first name because that's how you're addressing me. That's who you are. When we are in front of any student athlete, any recruit, anything like that is always coach so-and-so. Yeah. So I'm very purposeful in that regard. Yeah. And that sounds like just having intent, intent yeah. with the setting that you're in. And um, you put thought into it. That's really interesting. Um, let's talk about seriousness a little bit. Uh, I, I did a podcast with a coach from the Golden State Warriors uh, a, a couple of years ago now. But at the time, he said that Coach Care approached him and said, hey, you know what? I appreciate that you take your job seriously and that, you, you know, you're an intense individual. But I'd like for you to try to make the weight room a little bit more fun, you know, kind of make it like we do our practices a little bit. And I thought it was so funny that 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 came from a sports coach. Um, so, you know, the seriousness, it's kind of a balancing act, especially for someone like you that, you know, you're in a position of leadership. So have you thought about balancing seriousness with also the fact that you have to make the weight room a fun environment and a relaxed environment for your athletes to walk into? Sure. 
And I think it's based on what culture you're working with at a given time. And I think it's very clear that you're talking about a basketball situation where that is their culture. That is, they're very loose for the most part, um, easygoing, having fun. You know, if it becomes more of a militaristic style, those athletes are not going to buy in because that's not how they kind of grew up with strength and conditioning or if they grew up with strength and conditioning at all versus football, which is much different. Um, strength and conditioning was a, a huge part of that culture growing up most likely. And so it, it is much more, all right, we're going to start a set or a rep on the whistle. It's on me or it's on this person or on this. Um, we're going to do it together. Uh, a little less autonomy because that is again, part of their culture. So, you know, if you're somebody that's working with football and basketball and uh, field hockey, you know, you have to adapt yourself to that given environment. So you have to be an actor. You have to change the way you present yourself, maybe verbally um, or just the experience you're trying to provide based on kind of what the coach is or what you're going for. But at the end of the day is how can you create buy-in? How can you get, get these kids to enjoy what they're doing, to have purpose in what they're doing and to make an effect um, because of the positive aspects of what they're doing. So if that takes you making it fun and giving them a lot of ownership and blasting whatever music that they enjoy, just so they'll come in and they'll create some consistency with their workouts, you do it. Um, versus maybe there's a group that no matter what kind of environment and how fun it is, they just won't come in. And maybe the coach is on board with you, making it more stringent. And then that's what you do with that environment. And you simply adapt. Maybe one team, you have a, a young group that you have to do something different for than an older group that has kind of learned under you. So the more you can be a chameleon and kind of adapt, I think is, is the wise way to approach it. Do you feel like it's easier to relax a little bit in order to, to get more buy-in from athletes than it is to try to tighten up a little bit to, to get more efficiency out of a group of athletes? Sure. So I've approached it two different ways. So at Haverford, when I started as a younger coach, my mid-20s, I came in much, very stringent. And then over time, I loosened up. And I think I've done that the exact opposite at Penn, where I've come in just trying to get to know people, um, backing off and kind of seeing how things evolve. Maybe instead of determining exactly where the path of stairs needs to go, I kind of see where people are walking and what is the natural path created, and I adapt accordingly. So that's the approach that I'm currently taking, being trying to be as relatively easygoing as possible, uh, relatively, I would say, fun as, as possible. It's just more of a relationship-building style. And then when I need to, I crack the whip, all right? I am, the way we're going about this at this point is not right. We're going to flip the switch. So I change my demeanor. I change my voice pattern. Um, and, and I think that really catches their attention versus if I was always, you know, on point and – calling out sets and reps, just kind of my style and with the athletes I work with. And then I try to loosen up. I don't think they would believe me. I don't think they would feel like I was being natural because at the end of the day, you kind of have to be yourself too. Yeah. So that's kind of the style that I've, I've morphed into and I've had success with it.
Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Um, you, you read quite a bit. I, I know so you've told me about books you've read. Do you think that you've taken cues from the business or corporate world, um, you know, and incorporated them into your, your program? And I'm going to tie this into a little bit about the perception of the strength and conditioning industry, like you mentioned earlier. I think coaches as a whole would like to see the profession elevated and be seen through the lens of being more professional, more of a, a, a professional, uh, uh, you know, career than just being what, quite frankly, gets posted on social media, you know, about crazy stuff happening in the weight room. Yeah. So, like, um, if you could outline it, if you were in charge of, you know, the strategy that would elevate the profession, you know, how, how, would, you, how would you go about it? And is there, are there lessons to be learned from, say, the, the corporate world? I think we're most certainly in charge of more than performance or the numbers that we alluded to earlier. It is the culture that we're overseeing is whether we're creating a culture for strength and conditioning, you want to call it the weight room, or if we're helping a sport coach create and move forward their culture. To me, that is our, our number one duty is that culture building or maintaining if you already have a good one. So I think we're very um, attuned to the business world. We're kind of parallel in a lot of things that they're doing in terms of how can we get another individual to buy in? How can we get a group of people to kind of think uh, similarly, but at the same time have their own uh, unique um, understanding and uh, way of going about something, their own autonomy. Um, so, I've read many, uh, last three to five years, I would say two thirds of my reading has gone down that business mode, culture-esque type of route, the art of our field as opposed to the science. Mm. And I think it's the right way of doing that because you need to have the foundation of science. If you're a young coach starting off, don't let my words right now steer you away from mastering that because if you break down our given day, we are coaching in a physical standpoint the majority of the day. So we need to know the effect that our prescriptions are going to have on somebody. That has to be a minimal standard. So once that box is checked, then, and especially if you're in that leadership role, should you start broadening your horizons? So some of the books that have been really influential to me, Start with why, you know, what is your purpose? Um, and that has kind of morphed into that autonomy component with the book Drive. Uh, recently, I read a book titled Measure What Matters, which basically creates objectives and key results. So it very much so quantifies your approach. I think that has been helpful to me. In terms of culture, read Culture Code also extreme ownership. And then just from an interaction standpoint, this is an oldie but a goodie, how to win friends and influence people. Very influential book to me. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, this is a, a key question I, I want to insert into all my, my podcasts and it has to do around the, the topic of what's your edge. And, <laughs> um, you know, I just, I'm interested in hearing what, what coaches have to say because, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, there's a lot of people in the profession and, um, you know, there's a lot of people competing for uh, positions and competing for 
um, you know, places in the, the hierarchy of the performance field. So I'm sure all coaches think about this. So what do you, what would you consider your edge over the years, whether you were conscious of it or not? Hopefully uh, the ability to relate to the people I'm working with, whether it's student athletes, sport coaches, administrators, see uh, the perspective from their lens, um, care about people first. I think it's, again, it has to be that people approach. Yes, I know the science, or at least I was educated on that. Um, but if I don't care about the individuals, then I don't think it's going to be sustainable. So yeah. I've really taken it upon myself to get to know individuals, care about them, spend a lot of my time just interacting and being around people and going to practices, going to games, trying to take trips uh, on away games or foreign trips if possible, whenever I can, just to be around people and see what they do outside of the weight room. If I can get a sense of who somebody is outside of the weight room, I think my prospects of helping them in the weight room dramatically improves. So you would, your ability to relate to people is more of an advantage to you than say your network, your coach network, your ability to uh, interview or say your resume? I would think the ability to relate to people is related to the networking, the, um, the interview process, just being able to interact with somebody naturally and get a true sense of who they're going to be outside of that kind of unnatural situation of an interview. Um, so just the, I guess, people skills is hopefully uh, an edge. And I guess it comes down to that people skills. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, that that's a skill that you've been able to hone over time. You, you expect people to get better at this as long as they keep putting themselves in situations where they're trying. It's exactly right. It's not a, it's not a class you take. It's an experience you make, you know, putting yourself into those situations. And, and it's oftentimes an uncomfortable thing. It's not natural. I think, a lot of strength and conditioning coaches, myself certainly included, are naturally introverts. You know, we, we come home and we're very tired from being, a, being on stage all day and I just want to sit back and, and watch a game or whatnot and not talk to anybody. Um, and that's kind of who I am naturally whenever I have any downtime. I want to get away. So being learning how to be a people person is definitely an active skill. It's it's, it's an uncomfortable, but you know, we ask our student athletes to be in uncomfortable situations because that's how you learn. Same thing with us. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I had um, one last thing on my notes here for the podcast and it was just kind of around the future of the profession. Mm. I kind of get the sense that th this is not happening anytime soon, but I kind of get the sense here or there that the you know, strength and conditioning profession is, is kind of most similar to say the medical profession. Uh, and that it's, it's kind of being viewed through that lens in a way, you know, a, a, a strength and conditioning session is, you know, it's a dosage. It's a, it's a dose mm -hmm. of medicine of stress. And uh, especially now, you know, very health conscious for, for many good reasons, injury prevention. Um, do you have any thoughts on that about the, just the future of the profession and what it might require of strength coaches going forward? Certainly. I think it goes into kind of what our profession is calling ourselves in a way like, are we just strength coaches? Is it, is the word strength only mean 
muscle strength, physical strength, or is it more strength, meaning adaptability or strength that I can um, conquer any situation? So I, I see our field going much more into the holistic, how can we affect performance? Um, I think it's less of a black and white profession. Uh, maybe 10 years ago plus it was where we were in the weight room. We were in charge of exercises prescribed, sets and reps, and maybe we would get outside and be involved in some sort of running. Uh, but that has morphed into more of a gray profession where we may be out at practice assisting with a component of practice. We may be consulting with sport coaches about their practice design or the, the load that a certain individual has. We may be consulting, uh, playing a role with athletic training and sports medicine about an athlete being injured and their return to training, return to play. We may consult with those same individuals about, um, for lack of a better term, predicting injury and, and helping to mitigate that risk. Uh, we may be talking to administration about how to create an environment that engages the student athlete, that brings in recruits. You may be part of uh, the greater uh, university, or if you work in a private sector, you know, the more of the top rung global perspective and how can you enhance wellness? Uh, I, I think from a uh, national perspective, I think it's, it's obvious that we need to start thinking about preventative measures of health as opposed to the reactive measures. Uh, because that is more, much more sustainable, and you know, we are very effective at that, but we have to kind of see the future, know that we're going into this gray area, be okay with it, um, be adaptable, be that chameleon that I talked about earlier, um, and just be an asset, because it could go one of two ways. We can be a great asset to uh, many more people than we currently are, or we cannot adapt, and we're kind of pushed out of this performance industry, because we, we are not able to adapt and we don't, we, we have only one purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And that ties in, I mean, being holistic, uh, being open-minded to the many varieties that are now included in the, the scope of the work. Um, it kind of relates professionalism is not a standalone aspect. It kind of relates to a lot of parts of the job. I think that's probably a, a good place to stop here. Um, folks, I'm going to share Corey's contact details. Of course, if you do want to get in touch and, and share it further. Um, Corey, thank you again for your, your time here, man. I thought it was uh, awesome. You were the first person I thought of when I knew I wanted to do a podcast on this topic. And uh, like you said, it's, it's a continuing thing. It's, it's not a status that you achieve. That's something that you work on all the time. It definitely sounds like you do that. So thank you for sharing. My pleasure, Hugh. And do you mind if I ask you one question? Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're somebody I also respect and, you know, feels like we've known each other for many more than the small handful that we probably only have known each other. And you, your network is extensive, much more than anybody else I know, just because of simply your, the nature of your business. Where do you see this field going? Um, and do you have suggestions for both myself and, and coaches out there? How can we get a step ahead as opposed to being a step behind? Yeah, I, I kind of came up through the field when I, I heard very prevalently that your network kind of determines your outcomes. And, um, you know, that was kind of the theme for a while. And uh, I think that started to change quite a bit for the better. 
Uh, I, I think, you know, from what I can tell with coaches is that the positions now are, are kind of being hired more independently of, of who you know. Um, no, I think, you know, for instance, football is, is still going to be strongly related to your network just by the nature of that business. Uh, but I think it's moving away for that. Uh, and I think for the better, uh, I can see, you know, people uh, getting positions uh, because the people hiring them got better at hiring the positions. They're thinking outside the box in terms of who they bring in. And it ties into the holistic theme that you were mentioning. Um, programs, I think, are looking for an edge when they hire the role of that strength and conditioning coach. And they want someone who can bring something unique to the table, something that hasn't been at that program before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's exciting. Uh, I have countless conversations with coaches um, who, you know, kind of recognize this. And I've seen people go and get their graduate degree in massage therapy or, mm-hmm. you know, continue their continuing education in something that's kind of expanding beyond what we, I think we thought was the kind of traditional scope of where the strength coach worked. You know, I, I'm not evolved enough as a practitioner to know whether that's a good thing or bad thing, but I'm guessing it's probably is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm excited to see it happen. I see it happen in the private sector too. I see facilities that are trying to offer more than just a place to lift and to, to run somewhere Mm -hmm. indoors. Um, They, they want to add a little bit more to it. Um, So I see it across the board. I I see the the industry just kind of expanding and, and coaches recognizing that. And I think the people making the hiring decisions are keeping an eye out for that too. Um, so I think overall the, the profession is getting elevated in that regard. Yeah. I think the hiring individual is a key part of that. I think, all right, no people hiring for strength and conditioning positions or those type of positions are finally starting to understand what it takes to be a good professional in that area. Whereas before it was an athletic director that didn't know it was a sport coach that didn't know or they just had such a narrow window of insight into that field where now you have that high performance model or you have um, more strength and conditioning uh, positions being hired by strength and conditioning professionals that truly get it and truly hiring more for just more than just the X's and O's, but in addition to that, the art component. So I'm excited where the next decade will take this field and I'm happy to be a part of it. Yeah, same here. I think it's exciting. And I think conversations like this definitely kind of reveal what's going on in that regard. And um, I couldn't be more excited about it. I think it's really good. I think I think there's no doubt there's a lot of coaches out there that would like to get their hands on more technologies, more continuing education and mm-hmm. expanding their tool set, you know, if they were given the resources, right? I just think of a, a strength coach had unlimited resources, how much more they would expand yeah. into it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't double the size of their weight room. Well, maybe they would, but I don't think they'd be obsessed with necessarily doubling the number of racks as they would about adding new things to what they're doing. And I think that that's a good sign. The more we can enhance our relationships, the more we can enhance our exposure to the student athletes, the better. So uh, if a piece of technology helps you do that, go for it. Like Team Builder, shameless plug here, but the more you can get away from your desk and be with the kids, the better. But if it's adding technology that requires you to be, to be more in front of a computer, I think you're doing a disservice to yourself and the kids. Yeah, that's definitely right. That's definitely true. So good stuff. 
Corey, thanks again for the time. I uh, can't wait to put this out there. And uh, again, folks, Corey's a very approachable person. I'll, I'll have his preferred method of contact out there so that you can reach out if you'd like. Corey, I hope I see you again in person very soon. We will do that. Hewitt, thanks for moving this field forward, buddy. Thank you.